Uh, John 17, you can open up there. We're going to be in verse 20 through 26 this morning. I'm going to read the text for us as we get into it. John 17, starting in verse 20. Jesus prays this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. As you're probably aware at this point, we've been studying straight through the Gospel of John, and if you've been with us any length of time, you're aware of where we find ourselves this morning. If not, let me catch you up to speed. It's late into the night, Thursday night, early to the morning, Friday morning, Jesus in a few hours, will be arrested, he'll be put on a mock trial, he'll be tortured and beaten, and eventually he'll be crucified. This is mere hours before that happens. The wrath of God is just looming over his head now. And before he gets arrested, before he gets executed to pay for the sins of all of those who would believe in him, he goes to the Father for help in prayer. And John 17 records that prayer. It's an entire chapter devoted to Jesus' prayer. Most of Jesus' prayers in Scripture are not recorded. For what's called the Lord's Prayer really is the disciples' prayer. When Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray, that's, even that is just a template of prayer that he gives to us. There's another prayer recorded in Gethsemane around the same time. As this prayer is prayed in different gospel. But this prayer is certainly the longest prayer recorded by Jesus, one of the only prayers we actually have the words that he said. It's important then that we look carefully at what he is saying. Jesus goes to the Father in prayer. This is an exceedingly important prayer. It's an exceedingly important evening. He's about to endure the most difficult trial of his life. This will be the climax of the history of redemption. Everything that God had planned to save his people will culminate now this Friday in just a few hours from from this prayer. And to prepare for that, Jesus goes to the Father for help. And he has unity on his heart. Half of this prayer, more than half probably, is centered around in some way or another unity. Last week, we looked at his prayer for unity with God. What does it look like for the Christian to be united to God? What does it look like for the Christian to be one with God? For us to be God's, his possession, that is. Us to be taken out of the world and be brought into God's kingdom, to be objects of his grace and love and mercy. What does it look like for us to be united to God? We looked at that last week. This week now, Jesus prays for unity, but in a little bit of a different vein. He prays for unity with each other. Last week was our unity with God. This week, the the main thing for us to consider in Jesus' prayer is our unity with each other as Christians. So I want us to consider unity this morning. And as we begin to think about that, I want us to Think about it in more of a broad sense. Unity is a crucial component to any type of relationship or organization. It's not just a Christian thing. Think of social institutions, political institutions, structures and systems. Think of academic institutions. Think of family structures. 
Think even of our physical bodies. Biologically, we need unity. If we get gangrene and our arm rots off and it is divided away from our body, the, the arm is no longer useful or helpful and the body is weakened because there's no longer unity with the arm. Even in our physical body, it requires unity to function well in, in, in all systems and stru structures and institutions, social, political, recreational, or otherwise. Unity is required. It's a crucial component for the thing to function correctly and well. And when unity begins to erode, problems happen. You think about a family where there's infighting and arguing and bitterness and issues that we just can't get over in one household under one roof. And the parents are angry at each other and that anger turns into hatred and that hatred boils over into animosity and outrage and lashing out and the kids are affected and the kids are estranged that sort of thing, that's disunity. When unity begins to erode, certainly problems happen. Think about the political arena. We all probably have heard something or other the last couple of years on the news or from other individuals in conversation about the divide in our political landscape right now. There's two teams, and there's a really clear two teams, and those two teams are as against each other as one can be, and everybody is either on one team or the other, and if you're on the other team, then you're demonic, and we hate you, and you're stupid. That's the narrative, at least. That's a deep divide, isn't it? There, there are some serious foundational fissures in our nation politically. There's a lack of unity. Unity has completely eroded for the most part. It's a scary place to be. So unity is not just a Christian thing. It's important for all people. Theologians call this, uh, this would fall under what theologians call the light of nature, that God has revealed himself specially in his word, who he is, what salvation is, but there's a lot of things he's revealed about himself just through the light of nature. We can tell that God is big and powerful and creative and artistic and intelligent through nature. We can also tell that, that he values unity and that he's given us the gift of unity in human culture, not just in the church. Unity is important for all people. Unity is important for all structures and institutions and organizations and families. But the basis for Christian unity is totally unique. While Unity itself is not unique to Christians or Christianity. The basis for Christians of unity is totally unique. And that's where we're going to start this morning. What is the basis of our unity? What is the basis of our unity? It's an important question to ask. To function with the right unity in life in any sort of way, we need to know what it's based on, what the foundation is, what the root substances. Look with me at John 17, 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but also all of those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as, notice those two words with me, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be in us. I pray that they would be one just as, here's the pattern, here's what it's based on, here's the model, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Again, there's the basis, the model, the foundation He's praying for us that they, you and I, Union Church, Christians would be one even as the Father and the Son are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. What is the basis of our unity? Well, it's completely unique. It's not merely a shared interest. It's not merely a common political agenda. 
It's not merely personal preference that brings us together. It's not merely a common goal. Christians certainly do have common goals, but that's not the basis of our unity. It's not merely biological similarities. The basis of our unity is God himself. God himself. Again, notice with me, Jesus' prayer, how he prays this. I pray that they would be one just as we are one. I pray that they would be one, that you and me, that's what he's praying, you and me would be one just as or even as we, the Father and the Son, are one. So God himself is the model that our unity is patterned after. And furthermore, it's the basis that our unity is built upon. God himself is the basis of our unity. The Bible teaches, and Christians through the ages have always believed that God is triune, that the God of the Bible is triune, that he's one God, he's perfectly one, perfectly united, one God in three persons, distinct persons, one God with the same nature, perfectly united, but different persons within one God. Example here, Jesus, this evening, the eve before his crucifixion, one member of the Trinity, God the Son, is praying to another member, God the Father. That's distinction. Additionally, the Father did not become a man. The Son became a man. The Father is not praying to himself here in John 17. The Son is praying to the Father. Jesus is praying to the Father. There's distinction. The Father is not sent as the helper, but the Holy Spirit is sent as the helper. John 14, 15. 14, 16, rather. I will ask the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's not the Father, that's the Spirit. There's distinction there. And while there's distinction, there is also perfect unity. Perfect unity. In John 10.30, earlier in this book, Jesus says simply this, I and the Father are one. That's perfect unity. John 14.9-10, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then he says to Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, 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 and in fact, the things that I do are the Father's works. So connected are we that if you look upon me, you're seeing God the Father. Yet there is distinction. Distinct persons, but perfect unity is one God. The Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit are perfectly united in love, in joy, in holiness, in wisdom, in fellowship, in mission. They share all of the same attributes. Christians then have been taken out of the world, united to that God, to this perfectly united God, and they share in the very life of God. We receive as Christians all the blessings and benefits of being in God's family, of sharing, partaking in his life. All those then who are united to, to God, who is perfectly one, are united to each other. By virtue of us being united to God, we are united to each other. Are you tracking with this? I want you to consider this for a moment. There's all different kinds of people in this room. There's all different kinds of members of this church. There's all sorts of you in here this morning. Why are you here? Consider that with me for a moment. Why are you here? Why are there so many different types of people here gathered together doing the same thing? I'll tell you why you're not here. You're not here just because of a common interest. That's not the main reason you're here. Like, we like croquet, we both like croquet, so we're going to go play croquet, and then uh, soon there's a uh, little gathering there that we all are doing the same thing based around croquet. That's a common interest. That's not why we're here. That's not why you're here. You're not here merely because of a common interest. You're not here because 
We all share the same racial or ethnic heritage or background. We're not here because we all merely have a common language. That might be true, but that's not why we're here. We're not here because we're all of the same economic status. We're not here because we're all in the same season of life. We're, many of us are in different seasons of life. We are here, you are here, because we have shared identity in God. That is why we are here together. There's a lot of other reasons that come after that, but the main reason we are here, the main thing that binds us together is a shared, not a, not a shared interest, not a common interest, but a, but a common identity. Common identity in God himself. That is the basis of our gathering. That's the basis of our unity. God himself is the basis of why Christians have unity. God himself is the basis of all true, lasting, enduring unity. All other unity is temporary and fleeting. Think about it with me. Political ideologies change, don't they? Think of the last 20 years. That's not that long. 20 years in politics, political ideologies have changed, let alone 50 years ago or 100 years ago. A liberal Democrat back in the 60s would be pretty conservative now. They change. Social structures change. If you're united to a classmate or a group of classmates because you have a common schooling experience, when you graduate high school or college, you go off and do your thing, the, the, the unity is no longer there. If you have unity with somebody, uh, common mission or goal in your job, once you move on from the job or finish the project or get a promotion, the unity is gone. All, all unity is, is fleeting. It's, it's temporary. Even in families, many families are broken and are falling apart and have no true unity because they're centered on something else. If we're centered, if we have a marriage or a family that's, sent, that's child-centric, we know that kids grow up and then they leave. And if the family is centered on the kids, that's a big deal because now the bottom's fallen out. If the family or marriage is centered on how each other looks, the main thing is how attracted we are to each other. Well, when we get older and aren't quite as attractive and have a few more wrinkles which you will get there, all of us will. When that happens, we lose unity because we're not as hot anymore. If our unity in marriage is based on how hot we are, that's a fleeting unity. If it's based on financial stability, when there's a stock market crash or a housing market crash or whatever else, then the bottom falls out. See, the, those things are all failing forms of unity. Life changes, work changes, people change, kids change, they grow. But friend, God transcends all of that. All of those things end or change, but God never ends and God never changes. God is infinite. He is inexhaustible. He is unsearchable. And the unity he has in himself, it never changes, it never erodes, it never breaks. So when God brings us to himself, we are brought into that unity with him and we are brought into that unity with each other by virtue of being united to him. Our unity, as challenging as it might be at times, and we'll get to that, as challenging as it might be, it's founded on something, someone rather, who is undivided and unbreaking and unfaltering and unfailing. That's the basis of our unity. Shared identity in God himself. Well, that's good. I know the basis, but what, give me something practical, maybe you're thinking. What does that look like? How, how, how does this affect me today, this afternoon, tomorrow, this week? What does this mean for my life? That's our next point. What does unity look like for us? What does it look like for us? What does it look like in your life, in my life? What does it look like for us as Union Church? See, we're not just, we're not just a bunch of individual Christians out there on our own, we are part of a church. That's how God has designed things. That's how God has designed unity. So we must think through that lens. What does unity look like for us, not just for me and one other person, but what does it look like for us as Union Church? 
Through the work of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has brought us to himself. Cover that, that's salvation. The Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit are in perfect unity with each other as one God. We then, being brought into the life of the triune God, have unity with him. Now, Jesus prays that in God, we would have unity with each other. Okay, big picture. This means Christians, period. This means the universal church. That's all Christians at all times, everywhere. That's why we can go to another country or meet a Christian from another country here, and we have some sort of unity right away. We can meet a Christian from Africa, or we can have someone like Anya in the church who's from Poland and grew up at a church in Poland, and we can have unity even though she's from Poland, or we can meet a Christian from Asia or from Europe or, or anywhere, and, and there's, there's some sort of commonality there. There's a, there's a strong commonality, in fact. That's big picture. Specifically, though, God intends for our unity to be displayed, felt, made manifest, experienced in the life of a local church. We can have unity in Christ with a Christian across the world, but in reality, in daily life, unity is experienced in the church, in a local church. That's how God has set things up. That's his intention. That's where the unity is really put on display. That's where we're doing life with each other, day in, day out, week after week, real time. That's significant relationship, local context. See, church is not optional. When I was a young Christian, I would hear a lot of people just always feel the need to qualify salvation and Christianity with, well, church is just, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I heard that a lot as a young Christian. I think it was very unhelpful for me personally. Um, Do you have to attend church every single Sunday? And if you don't, you're all of a sudden not a Christian. Of course, that's not true. If that's the intent, then I'm on board with that. That's not true. God doesn't take our attendance, and if we miss one, boom, our name's taken out of the book of life, and we are condemned to hell. That's, That's not how that works. But I think the idea was more along the lines of church is optional. You certainly don't have to go to church or be a part of the church to be a Christian. They're distinct things. Knowing Jesus is one thing, and then there's also the church, which is amazing and great, but it's just not essential and that's just bad theology. That's just bad Bible. That's, that, that's not correct. You see, because Jesus died for the church, right? He died for the church. He died for individuals that make up the church, but he died for the church. He established the church. His name is made manifest to the world through the church. His grace is made known through the church. The church is his primary mission to the world. The church is always in scripture called his people, his bride, his beloved ones. So for us to say that's non-essential, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. I heard that a lot as a young Christian and I think it was not very helpful. So in an effort to be helpful for us, the church is the closest thing to Jesus' heart on earth, period. And for Anyone to say that it's non-essential is missing the whole point and scope of the gospel because that's just not true. Church is not optional. In fact, it's the place, the, the, the place where Jesus' prayer is lived out. His prayer right here, that they would be one as we are one, that my glory would be given to them, that it be displayed to the world, that they would continue to know, verse 26, I will continue to make known my love to them. That's through his word and the Holy Spirit. All of that is, is made real, is lived out in the church. So the question is then, what should that look like for us? What does that look like for us in our lives as church members of this particular church. Remember, if we just had a shared interest, we'd spend time doing things that reflect that interest, wouldn't we? Think about a shared interest in your life. Do you have people you like to go surfing with? Do you have people you like to smoke cigars with? Do you have people that you like to go on runs with? You like to go to the batting cage with? You like to go to the gym with? Name it, whatever it is. You have a shared interest and you and another person or a group of people get together and you do things that display your interest in that thing, right? When I was in high school, I went to high school here, I was on the wrestling team, and me and this group of guys had a shared interest. And you know what I did? 
all day. Wrestling was my very first girlfriend. I loved her with all my heart. And me and all these guys, we'd practice for hours. We'd go to tournaments all weekend, go on runs after practice. In the summer, when it wasn't even season, we'd spend our whole summer wrestling. Went to weird camps in the middle of nowhere, getting the snot beat out of you, just it, demonstrating a shared interest, right? Before, when I worked in the financial world, I went and got my investment licenses, and I'm in a class with a bunch of other guys studying eight or nine hours a day with other people who were very motivated to do that for a common goal, a common interest in getting investment licenses. So you do things that reflect your interests, right? So that's just with a shared interest. Remember, we as Christians have a shared identity. Okay, that's, 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 that's far, that drills down far deeper than an interest. That gets to the very core of our person. You've been saved by grace, Christian. You're a new creation. You have a new family. You have a new identity, that's more than a shared interest. So what does it look like for us to reflect that identity? How should it be reflected in our church? I have three marks for us that we'll try to cover briefly. Three marks for us I want us to consider. We could cover a lot. So if I left one out that was on your mind, you're probably right. I just wanted to be as brief and helpful as possible. Three marks, truth, love, and mission. Three marks that reflect our unity in God, but our unity to each other as a church. Three marks, truth, love, and mission. Start with truth. You can look back up a few verses with me. John 17, 17, Jesus prays this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path that literally illuminates the path that I need to take in life. When I get off the course of truth, I'm now walking in the darkness. I could be in the middle of the woods. I need truth to illuminate where I should go. Ephesians 6.14, stand firm therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. James 1.21, receive with meekness the implanted word. That literally the word is, is, impl is implanted in us. It has roots and the roots go down deep into our heart. Martin Luther says this regarding unity. He says, peace if possible, truth at all costs. For peace, we must have unity, right? We can't have peace without unity. It's a fake peace. We must have unity to have peace. But to have unity, we must have truth. That's the point of that. We can't say, I want to take peace over truth there's no such thing. To have true peace, we must have truth. Truth is the core of it. Truth leads to unity, leads to peace. We want to get to peace, but we'll never get there if we don't have truth. We must have truth. Christians being united to God will be united, will lead to Christians being united to each other in truth. Did you hear that? Christians being united to God, if that's a fact about who you are, if you're united to God, that will inevitably lead to Christians being united to each other in truth. Truth is essential. It is crucial. It is central. Believing, loving, submitting to God's word. John 17, 17, his word is truth. Jesus says this in John 8, 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. God's word tells us the truth about ourself, that we're fallen, we're sinful, we're rebellious, we're broken, that you've done things and I've done things that you, whether you're a Christian or not, think with me, you've done things you, you know you ought not have done. You've done things you feel guilty about. You've done things that you feel like you need to pay back, but you can't. You've done things that might not weigh at your conscience. You've done things that you should not have done. We're sinful and broken. God's word tells us the truth about God, that he's holy and just, but he's also gracious and merciful. God's word tells us the truth about what God has done, that he comes to rescue sinners in grace and mercy, that he takes the place of sinners in his death. Jesus God become a man takes the place of sinners to pay for all of God's wrath on us. 
That's what Jesus here Thursday night, Friday morning is looking forward to, bearing all of that wrath for all who would believe in him. God's word tells us the truth about all these things. And Jesus says, hearing, believing, receiving, that truth sets us free. Sets us free from slavery to sin, from bondage to sin and death and Satan and the fear of hell. Now, you, Union Church, are, I know, a people that loves truth. You come here to a Sunday service and you hear truth. You hear it at the very beginning of service. We do our call to worship. That's scripture being read. You hear truth. You hear it when we read scripture in the middle of service and pray as Dana did today. You're hearing truth read again and truth prayed. You hear it again when you listen to a 40 or 45 minute sermon, you hear it again when communion is administered, you hear it again at the end of service when we do our benediction, you hear truth. You also sing truth. All the songs we sing are intentionally, thoughtfully placed that they would help us learn about God. They would help us learn about the gospel. We don't sing songs that are bad that have bad lyrics, that have watered-down lyrics, that don't really teach us about anything, that just talk about how amazing we are and how great we should feel. We talk about songs that might make us feel great, and that certainly is a big part of it. There's an emotional element involved in worship, but the, the words of the songs teach us about God. You sing truth, and you also speak truth. When you're out on the patio, you're speaking to one another in truth, in love and in truth. I hear you out there. I hear you guys. Hey, man, I don't think you should be doing that. Yeah, you're right. I probably shouldn't. Okay, well, let's pray together, you know? Don't do that anymore. That's Christian exhortation. That's speaking truth to another Christian to help them grow in Christ. Say, man, I'm having trouble with, you know, getting the Bible, learning how to read it. I don't really know. And Well, hey, let me give you some pointers here. You have your Bible. Let's open it. Let's look at it. Here's where you should start. Let's meet this week. We can talk about it more. That's you speaking truth. So you're a people that loves truth. You're a people that loves truth. You're a people who love soul-fattening and life-changing truth. You prioritize the collective Sunday gathering to receive truth. It's not optional for you. In addition to our Sunday gathering, you and I, as Union Church, must also feed on truth each day ourselves on our own. We must feed on God's word. What will it look like for you, Christian, to continue to grow in love for truth? You love it. What will it look like for you to continue to grow in it? For us collectively to continue to grow in love for truth. For the body of Union Church to become further united in truth. Some of you love reading and learning. For some of you it maybe is difficult for a variety of reasons. Maybe you just simply don't like reading in and of itself. Maybe you just can't find the time with everything else going on. Some of you find it easy, some of you find it difficult, but all of us must be feeding on God's truth. Whether that's a natural thing for us or difficult, we all must be feeding on God's truth. We all must be seeking to grow in love for truth. We all must be in our Bibles daily. Now listen, not listen, not to get God's favor, but to get God. Not to get God's favor, but to understand the favor he has for us. We don't love truth to earn anything from God. We love truth because God loves us and has given himself for us. And we we, we take hold of him, knowing him more, loving him better as we give ourselves to growing in truth. So what would it look like for you to grow in truth? Let me ask you, do you need help in this? Do you need help? Do you, are you like, I don't know where to start or it's been so long, I'm just too overwhelmed, I don't know where to go, how to do that. Okay, if that's you, call the church, go to the welcome table, set an appointment, we will help you. We'd love to do that. We have guys right now in discipleship getting to know the Bible for the first time or dusting off the cobwebs and really getting back into things. That's what we're here for. 
We would love to help you. We'd love to get you in some accountability. Sometimes we just need a little bit of spurring on, like, okay, here's my plan. Day one, oh, that was good. Day two, I failed. Need help. I just need help. I need to, I need to start those rhythms again. Man, if that's you, we, we'd love to help you with that. We'd love to help you with that. We'd love to pour into you, to help keep you accountable, to help you in whatever way you need. Figure out a method, a rhythm that works and get truth into you. And we can help with that. Are you mature? Are you listening to this thinking, hey, I love that for all those people who that's difficult for, but I'm mature and, um, and I read my Bible a lot. Awesome, good for you. What would it look like for you to help others grow in truth? And oftentimes we think about that. We say, hey, I'm, I'm totally willing. Just ask. You know what? Someone who needs help growing in truth isn't gonna ask a lot of times. So let me ask it this way. What would it look like for you, mature Christian? Many of you do this already, but it's a good thought exercise for all of us. What would it look like for you to pursue somebody who's a little bit younger than you in faith and to pour into them, help them grow in truth? Truth demonstrates unity with God and grows us in unity with each other and it affects all aspects of life. Don't think to yourself this morning, yeah, yeah, truth, it's just not that practical. You know, I'm not a theology guy. I just, I'm a practical person. Um, You know, just give me the practical stuff. I love God. I'm just not into some of that stuff though. It's just too, I'm not talking about lofty, academic, unhelpful stuff. I'm talking about truth from God's word. It affects all of life. It affects our families. You will operate in your family differently if you have a deep and growing understanding of God's word. You will. You as a husband will operate differently. You as a wife will operate differently. You will raise your children differently. You will manage your household differently if we understand God's word and are giving ourselves to it. Your job will look different. You will work differently. You will rear your children differently. And friends, as we grow in unity and truth, our church will just become healthier and healthier and more robust. Okay, truth. Number two, love. We can't only have truth, right? If all we have is truth, all we have is truth, then all that is is a good club to beat someone over the head with, right? Truth is a very um, essential thing on its own. It's also a very dangerous thing. We need truth. Everything I just said is crucial about truth. We also need truth in love. We need love. Some verses for you. John 13, 34 through 35. Jesus, the one who spoke the most truth of anyone who walked the earth, also says this, a new command I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Romans 13, 8, love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. We're gonna grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Okay, that's love. The priority of love in scripture is enormous. Love, we've defined it many times in John. I'm gonna give it to you again. Love, as we've defined it biblically, is not primarily a feeling or a state of being. Love is the commitment to seeking the good of another person without selfish motives. Love is the commitment to seeking the good of another person without selfish motives. Okay, so speaking the truth in love isn't, I just wanna beat down on you because I want you to feel bad. And it's true, it's I'm committed to seeking your best in Christ and in life. And so therefore, I need to speak some hard truth because that's the best thing for you. Huge difference, isn't there? One is trying to harm, one is trying to help. One is trying to tear down, one's trying to build. Yes, love is essential, and it's not just when we feel like it. Look at Jesus, consider his life. Did Jesus love well? The answer is yes, he loved perfectly. Did we deserve Jesus' love? No, we did not. Did Jesus feel like pouring his love out? 
Well, in a few moments from this prayer, he's gonna be sweating drops of blood because he'll be so stressed out and exasperated. He's gonna be tortured, brutally tortured and crucified. The wrath of God and all of that pain of the sin of all his people will be poured out on his shoulders. Do you think he felt like doing that? Jesus is not like some Spock-like figure who doesn't feel any pain. He's just faking it. He's, he, feel, he felt all of it. Did he feel like doing that? He didn't feel like it but he was committed to it, that's love. That's love. Jesus didn't just love when we deserved it because we didn't. He just didn't love when he felt like it because he often didn't. And yet he pursued in perfect love. So what will it look like in life for you to love like that? What would it look like in our church if we loved each other like that? If we continue to grow in loving each other like that? As people come in and we welcome them that they're loved like that. Husbands, what would it look like for you to love your wives like that? Not when they deserve it. Not when, you know, I feel like it or when, you know, she hasn't done something that's frustrated me. What will it look like for you to stop thinking about what she's done and how she needs to change and how bad she is or how challenging she is or frustrating she is or how different she is to to stop talking about that and to think about how will I love my wife like Jesus did, pursued his bride when she didn't deserve it and feel like it and when he didn't feel like it. Wives, what would it look like for you to love your husbands like that even if they're not doing all the things that you'd like them to do or behaving in the way that you'd like them to behave? What would it look like for you to love them like that, committed to their good, without selfish motives, not just to get stuff, not just to get permission for something on either side, husbands or wives, but out of unselfish motives. What would it look like to love our kids like this, our friends like this, our fellow church members like this, to love strangers like this without saying, but here's the reason I can't or I don't. What would it look like to do it, actually do it? Truth, love, number three, mission. Look at verse 21 with me. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Now look, so that, so that, here's the purpose in other words, so that for this purpose that the world may believe that you have sent me. I pray that they may be one as we are one so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Verse 22, the glory that, I've, that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one. That they may be perfectly one, verse 23, so, so that the world may know that you sent me. Okay, that's mission. So that the world may believe, that's mission language. Verse 22, the glory that the Father's given the Son, he gives to us. That's not that we are glorified, it's that we display God's glory, we display his person, we display who he is, we display his goodness. We receive Jesus' glory. It's the manifestation of God's character that is now shown to the world. Jesus revealed to us who God is. We receive, we're united, and now we display so that others might be united. That's mission. That's mission. Now listen, we are brought into union with Christ so that the world might know Christ. Okay, that's our mission as a church, that we would know Jesus, declare Jesus, make disciples in Jesus. It's on your bulletin. We try to get it in front of you as much as possible so we can all be on the same page, unified in mission. That's the purpose. Our mission and our gospel witness to the lost is not optional it, it is fundamental to who we are as Christians. You and I are a people sanctified by God through whom he makes himself known in the world. That's who we are. That's what God does through us. So just a question for you to consider this week. What circles has God put you in? What people has God put you with? What, what areas of life do you rub shoulders with people? Where do you spend time at? Where do you go to the grocery store regularly? Where do you go to get gas? Who do you speak with at work? Where do you get your hair done? All all of those things. You know, God is sovereign over everything, right? And he puts us in these sorts of places and 
the right times in front of the right people so that we would get to know them and have a gospel witness in our city. That's mission. Who has God put you in front of, with, around, that you pursue with the gospel for friendship with the gospel? That's your mission field. We're doing a men's group for the summer, doing some specified thinking on this. We're trying to get specific on mission, on growth, on all of that stuff. What's the next season, phase, life of the church going to be like? Um, We don't want to just be in a comfortable spot or have a place that people come and say, this is a cool church, I want to be a part of it. Um, Nothing wrong with being cool, that's all fine. That's just not all we want. We want to reach more and more people. People are getting reached, and we want to continue to reach people. We don't exist to be comfortable and just to enjoy stuff, but to be on mission with God. The whole body united in this, on mission with God. Friends, when we as a church are united, when God's church is united, then the Holy Spirit moves. You think about it like electricity moving through a cable. If it's broken, it can't go through. There's no unity. The Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, for him to move, we must be united in these things. We must be united in mission, and that will bring health, joy, and fruit. As a result of hearing all of these things, I I want you to consider this week in truth, love, and mission, what, what will it look like to grow in these things? Do you need to get in your Bible? Do you need to help someone else grow in knowledge and love for truth? Do you need to love somebody you haven't been loving How will you love your spouse differently, your children differently? How will you think about mission differently as a result of hearing this? I I want you to really consider all of that. That's why we have those questions on your bulletin. We spend time doing that for you to reflect on them. But, But also, in closing, we also need to know, and hammer this nail again, what makes all of this possible? How do we press forward in this? Because you know it's going to be hard, right? Learning truth is hard work. Loving people, can that be hard? It can be very hard. Can loving you be hard for others? Certainly, for me, it can. Loving can be hard. Growing in truth can be hard. Mission can be hard. We have to kind of lay our lives down to do these things. So when it's hard, how do we press forward? And when we fail, how do we press forward? What makes our unity possible? This is the last thing I want us to consider this morning. What makes our unity possible? We'll finish here in verse 23 through 26. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. Listen, God is the basis of our unity, but he is also the fuel for our unity. We as Christians are not striving for unity in our own power, in our own energy. We are not striving for unity out of fear of punishment. We are not striving for unity to please an angry God. We are not. 1 John 4.18 says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We are not striving to grow in these things to please an angry God so we won't be punished. We, we, we do not strive to get love, but rather because we have love. We have love. We have God's love. Look at, with me at verse 23 and consider this verse. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. Now look, hone in here with me. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying they need to be one with you and with each other so that they can know, Father, that you love them as much as you love me. 
God loves you in Christ as much as he loves Jesus, his own son. God loves you and I infinitely. He could not love us anymore. He will not love you any less. How do we know that? Because we are promised that he loves us in the same way that he loves his own son. Why? Because we're in his son. We don't strive to grow in truth and in love and in mission to please an angry God, but rather that we might realize further the love that God already has for us. That's our motivation. That's our fuel for mission, for love, for truth. I'm gonna end with a quote here as the worship team comes back up. Think with me before I read this quote of the ones you admire most in life. Who do you admire most? Think about someone maybe you don't even know who you admire most, you idolize them. If that person were to pursue you, the person you admire most, if they were to love you, if they were to esteem you, how would you feel about that? Tell you what, you'd be motivated to love them back. Quote for you from Tim Keller. He says this, to be highly esteemed by someone you highly esteem is the greatest thing in the world. Now to know that the Lord of the universe loves you is the strongest foundation that any human being can have. A growing awareness of God's love in Christ is the greatest reward. Yes, it's the greatest thing to be esteemed by somebody that you esteem, and it's even a greater thing to be esteemed by God himself, loving us with the same love that he has for his son. Amen? We get to respond to God's love this morning, friends, in song. I would encourage you to sing loudly together in communion. If you're a Christian, you love and know Jesus, we get to partake in the visible sign of his love poured out for us, and we get to partake in Responding to God through prayer, we invite you to come up front with us and pray if you need to be prayed over or for. Father God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the basis, God, of our unity that you have given us yourself, that you yourself are the basis of our unity, the basis of our love, the object of our affection, the basis of our truth, and the fuel for our mission God, I pray for us as Union Church that as we consider who you are, our union with you, your love for us, that we as church members on the ground, day to day, week to week, here on earth, would practically be united to each other more and more. That we'd be united in truth with one another, loving, obeying truth. That we'd be united in love, caring for and loving you and each other that we be united in mission as one body with one mind, worshiping one God, moving forward to mission in our city for the lost. Amen.